Oh, don't shut the fuck up. Never <laughs> shut the fuck up. Okay. It is... No. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busted Business Bureau. My name is Christian Borky. I write, host, and now produce this podcast by myself. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you'd like to support me in self-producing this podcast... You can donate to my Patreon at patreon.com slash bustedbizbureau. That is also my handle across social media. All right. So what time is it? Like 10 fucking p.m. on a Sunday night. I'm with my super special roommate, Jordan. Hi. It's so nice to finally be in your ears. Aw. You've been on one bonus episode and yeah. one deleted episode before. So for the real fans, you already know me. Mm-hmm. I'm single. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> flirting <laughs> and we're sitting just like at a bar <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes we're doing our best <laughs> we're doing amazing so if the audio quality of this podcast takes a notable dip know that i am working on it and mm. i will get it back to normal but i think uh, yeah. this sounds pretty damn good i think it sounds good and also just like reiterating like the self-producing part of it this is the first episode uh, insert your clap right here <laughs> clap, clap, clap. great so <laughs> so proud of you <laughs> um good. do you want to plug anything before we jump in sure i uh uh because the lincoln lodge is incredible if you are in the chicagoland area or just chicago i uh, co-produce and co-host a poetry comedy show called giggle hour it's so fucking good it's so fun it's so exciting we have our second show september 5th uh it's happens the first week of every single month so please uh follow us on giggle.hour on instagram to also just like catch up with us it's just super exciting and i really love it so yeah follow that (laughs) poetry and comedy it's so good it's so exciting so thanks to the lincoln lodge for yeah that we love the Lincoln Lodge. <laughs> Which, to be clear, I'm self-producing, not because it's any tea or drama. I still fully am the manager there. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. people are going to be like, damn, does she have a falling out to the Lincoln Lodge? No, I'm here every single day. Yeah. I just love drama, so I try to make it sound as dramatic as possible, but there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing there. It's just like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Just, Everybody was like, say it in a messy way. Like, yeah. Say it in a way that starts drama. <laughs> but what drama? When it's you. Well, that could be a lot of drama. Anyways. Here's a random anecdote to get your attention, and it's what led me to writing this episode. Mm. This anecdote takes place in the year of 1944, during World War II, in the U.S. And the anecdote is about how confusing maps were back in the day, uh, before Hawaii and Alaska are U.S. states. Okay, are we situated emotionally? Yeah. All right, so... I, like, know where we are in the history of maps. It would <laughs> beg the question, then, what are Hawaii and Alaska? You know, they didn't just become U.S. Like... I guess they did become U.S. states when yeah. they did in the 50s. But well, like Alaska still called like the last frontier of like the Western mm-hmm. states, which is weird because it's not the most Western. And when you live in the U.S. states, well, it's it like, is, well, so. what is it called? So oh, true. here's the anecdote. Quote, even the world atlases were confusing. Rand McNally's wartime ready reference atlas of the world, like many other atlases at the time, listed Hawaii, Alaska, Puerto Rico and the Philippines as foreign. A class of seventh grade girls at Western Michigan College Training School in Kalamazoo scratched their heads over this. They'd been trying to follow the war on their maps. How, they wondered, could the attack on Pearl Harbor have been an attack on the United States if Hawaii was foreign? They wrote to Rand McNally to inquire. Quote, although Hawaii belongs to the United States, it's not an integral part of this country, the publisher replied. It is foreign to our continental shores and therefore cannot logically be shown in the United States proper. The girls were not satisfied. Hawaii is not an integral part of the country. Quote, 
We believe this statement is not true, they wrote. <laughs> it is, quote, an alibi instead of an explanation. Again, mind you, they're at fucking seventh grade. They use the word alibi. Sorry. An alibi, <laughs> alibi instead of an explanation. I knew what that meant like my sophomore year of college. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Further, they continued, we feel that Rand McNally Atlas is misleading and a good cause for the people of outlying possessions to be embarrassed and disturbed. (laughs) (laughs) The girls forwarded the correspondence to the Department of the Interior, in whose archives I found, and asked for adjudication. Of course, the seventh graders were right. And as, as an official clarified, Hawaii was indeed part of the United States. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> what a seventh grade project. <laughs> Imagine your seventh grade project being like, yeah, we sent a couple like letters back and forth. Uh, With the Department to, of the Interior. Uh, no biggie. <laughs> I played the candle of Beauty and the Beast in seventh grade. <laughs> in Beauty and the Beast In the seventh grade, I discovered that wearing uh, plaid shorts with a plaid t-shirt <laughs> plaid spl- or plaid like button up was not the move. That was like my big discovery. Oh, so, so you exited your Jeanette McCurdy era. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Let's keep moving, please. (laughs) I don't want to talk about something. (laughs) This anecdote comes from Daniel Imavar's book, which I'm borrowing from, greatly, narratively speaking, Mm. How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States. It is hilarious. It's readable. Mm -hmm. It's informative. It's one of my favorite books I've picked up, and the book digs into the idea of the fact that the, like, contiguous United States logo, like what you think of when you think the United States of America, that map was only accurate for about three years of history. (laughs) Like ever? Yeah, from like 1854 to like 57 was like just that one chunk, no Hawaii, no Alaska, like just a chunk of the contiguous United States. Mm. Only accurate for three years, and yet that is our logo map. Oh. Um, And so it's like, why is that all we know of as the Mm -hmm. United States? What is going on with the rest of the territories? That's what the book digs into. It's so good. We occupy Puerto Rico, Guam, Guantanamo Bay, Mm. the Virgin Islands, the Philippines for a while. Just to name a few, but none of them appear on any maps of the U.S. Hawaii and Alaska do now, but not the other guys. Why? And what the fuck are we doing occupying those places in the first place? Imovar's book gets after complex military and legal histories, but this is busted business bureau. Mm. <laughs> you can't unlink business from military or legal operations. Human history is, in fact, dictated by access to resources, which in the modern day is just what you call business. Yeah. <laughs> so as it turns out, a hilarious piece of the puzzle of the U.S. expanding into overseas territories is, and I'm not fucking joking, the buying and selling of bird shit in the 1800s. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, shit got us through it, sure. Shit got us through it. We made laws about it. <laughs> Other countries fought wars about it. Yeah. People suffered worse fates than you can imagine uh, working to break into awesome. bird shit. So that's why today's episode is called The Imperial and Economic Consequences of Bird Shit. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I hope you're drunk for this. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let me get a sip of my Negroni before I continue. Well, I also was just going to say, like, I feel like, I don't know if this is not spoiling anything, but my initial thoughts on on this is like, oh, right. Why why would we ever call those territories? You said occupied, like, places part of our map, because if we call them part of our map, then we're responsible for the messed up bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, Like, underlying shit that we do in these places. Oh, God. Okay, let's go. Let's circle back to bird (laughs) (laughs) doo-doo. So, why bird shit? Why was it so important? (laughs) Yeah, why was it? What's up? Do you remember the first scene of Wally, 
where it's Earth, hundreds of years into the future. The planet is lined like floor to ceiling with trash. (laughs) Plastic forks, wrappers, bottles, dirt, Mm -hmm. lining the planet, crust to atmosphere. Humans have long since abandoned the Earth in this film, leaving behind a fleet of robots meant to consolidate the trash so that the humans can repatriate. Our main character, Wally, is a robot who collects trash in his little belly. He makes a cube the size of his belly and like spits it out, and that is the consolidated trash. If he does this enough, then the humans will be able to come back to the earth. So in scene one of the film, you see him like take up some trash, cube it, spit it out, and it's on top of a bunch of other cubes that he's done. Like literally skyscrapers. I was just about to say, it pans out and it's skyscrapers of trash. Okay, let's abandon Wally for now. Picture, if you will, a bird. Imagine a bird sitting on a rock in the hot sun. White goop shoots out of its cloaca or whatever. <laughs> That's what I wrote. What's the word? Cloaca. Okay. Is that like anus for bird? It's like it's like all three things. I only know like oh. it, it's like oh wow. It's gooch. It's it's butt. <laughs> it's also like where the penis is internally. It's insane. Yeah, it's just all in a like great one way. hole. Yeah, like good for them. Yeah, They're, they've evolved. They, yeah, it's way better than us. <laughs> it should just be one hole. That's what God intended. <laughs> So the bird is taking a shit. It's sunny outside, and this bird is on a remote rock in the middle of the ocean. Then another bird comes along and also takes a shit on that same dry rock. Now picture this billions of times over until you've got piles of bird shit that are, and I'm not exaggerating, 300 feet tall. Oh, my God. (laughs) Taller than our apartment, longer than one and a half hockey rinks, according to Google. Like, you get the picture. They are that big. From, like, one little bird doo-doo into, like... Well, it's a community shit place, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, we're all going to come together and we're going to make this together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So okay. it stacks up to, like, unfathomable heights. It, longer than our apartment, too? Sorry, that's yeah. like a personal reference. Yeah, but, me. like, it's bigger Shit. than our apartment. Like, our apartment is not 300 feet tall. That's cool. Okay. And I mean, like, the whole building of our apartment. I don't mean, like, our oh, apartment. Oh, my God. I mean that whole thing. So Ooh. picture that, but just bird shit. That's awesome. Isn't that a sleigh? Yeah, it is a huge sleigh. Nature's cool. So, for thousands of years, birds been shitting. <laughs> <laughs> and the Inca civilization mm. uh, in their time discovered pretty, I, I assume quickly, how to use this shit to their advantage. Because you see, a key farming ingredient lies within these calcified piles of bird shit. Mm. Nitrogen. Oh. Nitrogen, apparently, you said that like you know, which I don't know if you're kidding. Well, because, no, like, the when you buy, like, potting soil or things, you want the little, like, bit, the little pebbles of nitrogen in there. Yes. That's the thing that you're buying. You're not yes. actually buying the actual, uh, like, quote unquote, shit from another animal. Wow, we buy a lot of shit in our lives. Yeah, we do. Holy shit. Okay, I'll let you talk. Anyways. No, I mean, like, you nailed it on the head. Like, we buy nitrogen because it yeah. is very, like, good for uh, plant yields That's and such. That's not something I thought would be in these, like, towers of shit. But, yeah, well, yeah. I guess something when birds eat certain kinds of fish or certain seabirds, like boobies and, like, <laughs> that's the only one I retained. I didn't write any of them down, but of course I remember that it's boobies. <laughs> like, when they eat these certain kinds of fish, their digestive tract, whatever, just, like, yeah. shits out the nitrogen. Okay. So guano is what it's called, is very nitrogen dense. Heard. This Inca wisdom, again, the Incas were, like, very tuned into this they shit. They were super advanced. Oh, my God, they were so advanced. Yeah. So they figured this out. 
that information gets lost to time until like Alexander Van, I didn't even write this down. Alexander Van Humboldt or whatever, like came across a remote Peruvian civilization and was like, oh shit. Like, what are you guys doing with all this? (laughs) Oh shit, literally. Sorry, we're going to, anytime we say shit now, no more buttons. It's (laughs) it's going to keep happening. (laughs) So he was like, oh my God, people are like doing this and let me do some tests and whatever. Discovers that again, guano is an extremely potent fertilizer, Mm. which at the peak of the industrial revolution, as it were, is a very key invention. You've got more people than ever to feed. Mm -hmm. You've got factory farming just cropping up. So it's kind of a symbiotic relationship. Like we can feed more people if we have more guano. We need more guano to feed more people. You understand? Yes, I think so. Uh, yes. My eyes glaze over whenever, whenever anyone talks about the Industrial Revolution or, like, farming. Well, yes, like, but <sighs> what you just said... It- <laughs> <laughs> All the, like, character cartoons. Like, I'm sorry. Literally. But uh, how I'm taking this is just, like, with the boom of the Industrial Revolution, we, there was a lot more people to feed, and so you need more crops. And yeah. you need more farming. Exactly Also, that. farming dramatic... The farming is the, the main thing that changed very, 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 very dramatically, along with, obviously actual industrial things but anyways mm-hmm. yes so that's about where we I'm are with it. <laughs> once it's discovered that guano is a this potent of a fertilizer from roughly like 1840 to 1890 this kicks off events that lead to like i said wars millions of tons of bird shit being hauled across oceans new u.s laws uh, that kind of yada yada our way into an overseas imperial expansion and the formation of companies that still exist today okay isn't that cool? <laughs> so do you have any questions about bird shit or the start of this craze? I'm um, pausing right now to ask. Like bird shit and the start of this craze. I guess like my question is the yada, yada, yada. But we'll I, get there. I feel like when it comes to capitalism and needing more, uh, it just kind of makes sense. I don't have questions. I feel like it's been explained pretty clearly. I feel like it's kind of like when we discovered frozen yogurt in like 2010. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what the hell was up with all the frozen yogurt? It was fucking everywhere. Yeah. And then it, like, disappeared in 2014. Like, we stopped doing frozen yogurt. It was very that. Like, it was a guano boom and bust. Wow, I guess I'm, like... So, I grew up in a really small hometown, and actually, like, frozen yogurt... There's now a frozen yogurt store that came in, like, I want to say 2014. Okay. Was 2010 really the, like, boom of frozen yogurt everywhere? I mean, yeah, I was eating Froyo in 2010. Yeah, I actually don't remember eating frozen yogurt before then. Because I would go to like cities and things like when we go shopping every like every six months. That's how small <laughs> the hometown was. Sorry, I lived like in the mountains, in the home, <laughs> like in my hometown. So, I'm um, sorry. I'm a little more blown away about that frozen yogurt analogy. <laughs> but let's but keep going. also, I'm going on my own personal experience. I did not research that for a second. So people oh, might be like, right. frozon yogurt did not last 2010 to 2014. Like that, that's way out. <laughs> and I'm like, for me personally, that's when froyo happened. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Well, but it's just weird because I'm also like, oh yeah, that's kind of when it exploded and. The place that I grew up in. Yeah. Yeah, around that time. Anyways. So, um, you may be wondering, what was it like to participate in the Froyo, I'm sorry, Guano, uh, <laughs> boomy busty of the 1800s? <laughs> so, for this section, I'm borrowing heavily from another book I read. I only read some chapters of this book because it's fucking unreadable. Um, but the book is titled Guano and the Opening of the Pacific World, A Global Ecological History. This is by Gregory T. Cushman. Damn. I know. Yeah, what a title. And even in the beginning, he tells you how miserable he was writing this book and how miserable you'll be reading it. Mm. (laughs) He writes, quote, I made these discoveries because I had the fortitude or foolhardiness to follow guano birds, their poop, 
and the people who cared about them around the world, no matter where they went. I recently learned that there is a name for this following methodology. I use that to produce this book. I cannot recommend it enthusiastically to those concerned with establishing an academic career, raising a family, or retaining their self-esteem. <laughs> raising their self-esteem. Yeah, no. Ret- he didn't say raising. He said retaining their self-esteem. Oh, ret- <laughs> he was like, you're not going to go anywhere from this. But well, yeah. he was like, if you do the same thing I did to write this book, uh, you're going to want to die. Oh. Uh. <laughs> Because, like, like he said, he just tracked guano birds around the world and, yep. like, the people who have studied guano birds and stu- stuff like that. So that's how he produced this, okay. again, frankly, unreadable book. I... It's not for the general public consumption. How, how did he go out? What like, do you mean? Like, long life? Is he okay? I actually don't know if he's... St- I would imagine... He wrote... The- he published this in 2013. I imagine oh, he's still alive. okay. Hey, hey. <clears throat> so circling back, the question... We've discovered that we can make a lot of money and food off of harvesting and selling bird shit, right? Like, it's good for agriculture, Mm -hmm. good for business. So, let's say you're a free white person living in the mid-1800s looking to make some cash. How do you break into the industry? Because, mind you, slavery is still fully legal at this point. Like, not everyone's free. So, uh, to answer that question, we're not going to put ourselves in the brain of a free white person. We're going to go to the island of Niue and this kid who was named Moga. Okay. He lives in a remote island, again, uh, Niue. It's in the Pacific Ocean, early 1870s. Moga lives entirely off the land with his family and doesn't have much to show for it. And then one day, an extremely British man pays a visit to this island. That man is J.T. Arundel. So to get you some characters, the only like comparison I can think of, which is absolutely going to be problematic in like four minutes, is like uh, the dudes from Up, like the really old guy from yes. Up and Russell. Yep. Just picture them. Okay, picture them coming into this. Uh, is that the Amazon? Where do they fly into? Fly in 1850s? No. I oh. <laughs> up. Sorry. <laughs> I think it's Venezuela. I think it's remote oh, Venezuela okay, that they right. fly okay. into. Anyways. Um, but Moga and JT Arundel. Moga and JT. Okay. Moga and JT. J- Moga and Justin JT. Timberlake. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Be- much better comparison. <laughs> JT arrives on Moga's island looking to start a business in- during this new guano boom. Yep. Right? It's discovered this is a potent fertilizer. He's like, I want to get to an island ASAP to start harvesting this shit. Yep. Moga is too young to do this manual hard labor of harvesting, quote, even by the low standard of the time. <laughs> oh, wow. Which, if you're too young to do hard labor in the 1870s, are you like six? Yeah, I was gonna, well, because they would just like, they would have children die yeah. to do work. So I'm thinking he must be six. Well, also like if the bird shit is piling up on cliffs, right? Like high up places. No, it, it's oh. pretty accessible, relatively oh, accessible. Like accessible. it's not just some cliffs. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> Um, that said, Arundel let this kid be his personal assistant for 13 years. And like I said, there's no age given because, like, Moga doesn't have a birth certificate or whatever. Also, assistant, you flew into this place. Shipped. You oh, shipped. Sorry. Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> that, that doesn't change it. You just like, showed up. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Um, but. Shipped. Sorry. Shipped. 1800s. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if this kid was too young to, like, you know, pickaxe a bunch of rocks and stuff, but old enough to be your personal assistant. Did you have a personal assistant who's like eight? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was the math I was trying to figure out. Thank you. Right. So from Cushman, quote, Mm. in classic Victorian style, Moga kept a devotional journal and wrote frequent, deeply personal letters in the lingua franca of guano workers from the era. It's a mix of Tahitian, English, and Nguyen. 
These materials provide us with a unique glimpse into the life on the Guano Islands from the perspective of an indigenous worker. Mm. Pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. It's so cool. That's also something that's not often like able to be accessible like mm-hmm. today because it's literally written down. Yeah. Yeah. So nice. what are these insights that we get into Mogwa's life or yeah. to Moga's life? Yeah. In the 13 years he traveled with the Arundel family, he had barely any money to show for it. He frequently got into employment disputes and would disappear for hours on end, which is a sleigh. It's not elaborated like what kind of employment disputes, but I can imagine it was like, I'm not paid enough for this shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm walking away. Because <laughs> he was like a caregiver. He was also like having to oversee workers. He was yeah. having to do like everything. From- well, he had to do everything because these people were sh- like shipped themselves over, mm-hmm. have no idea how the actual like island works, what is the culture here, what is the like weather, all of that. Well, to be clear friends. though. Um, Moga left, I didn't explain this, left with JT Arundel two other remote oh, Pacific holy islands. holy shit. So okay. that is good information. Okay, Thank okay. you for bringing that up. Yeah. They like went together to remote islands where nobody lives to go pick at bird shit all day. Oh, okay. That makes a and lot so of sense. And okay. so Moga's kind of taking care of JT Arundel's family. Mm-hmm. Obviously getting paid fucking jack shit for it. Yeah. Gets into frequent employment disputes, leaves for hours on end, and JT Arundel eventually gets tired of this after 13 years, I guess. And is like, Moga, I'm done with you. Go back to your island. Moga shows back up on his island with fucking nothing to show for it because it was just indentured servitude at mm-hmm, best. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he wants a wife really badly, but he has no money. So he's like, you know what? Now that I'm old enough, it's been 13 years, and I'm, what, like 21? <laughs> <laughs> Woo! You I'm going to take babe. a job. Sorry. I'm going to take a job like actually harvesting guano because hmm. that's where the money is. And not just being like some unpaid personal assistant. So, I'll pause now. This is no longer Moga's account. I'm switching gears. Okay. To Daniel Imavar's uh, description of what it's like to work on Guano Islands. Like, to actually work. Quote, Guano mining, tunneling, picking, and blasting at the stuff loose and hauling it to waiting ships was arguably the single worst job you could have in the 19th century. It offered all the backbreaking labor and lung damage of coal mining... But to do the job, you had to be marooned on a hot, dry, pestilential, and foul-smelling island for months. Respiratory diseases, causing workers to pass out or cough up blood, were common. So, too, were gastrointestinal ailments, the unsurprising consequence of crowded conditions, rotten food, and dearth of fresh water. Clouds of shrieking seabirds darkened the skies overhead, unleashing the occasional fecal rainstorm. (laughs) (laughs) It's not funny, but it's so bad. Holy shit. Imagine coming back to like the bunker wherever the fuck you're like sleeping and go like, yeah, how was your day? Oh, you know, the forecast today. It was just shit. It was a lot of shit. Like, it's whoa! It's a nightmare. Also, I know, like, but just wear a mask. I know it's like doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, figure it out. <laughs> yeah, Put a cloth over your mouth. I don't know. Figure it out. <laughs> your advice to these workers in the 1800s is wear a mask. Yeah, we're like sitting for. You're gonna booth. so regret. That's gonna be so problematic <laughs> of you to say in two minutes when I'm about to do all the reveals that I do. Oh. Okay, yeah. All right, go for it. Um, but, okay, the last thing that Imavar writes <laughs> is that on Howland Island, an out-of-control rat population scurried underfoot, adding yet another vile ingredient to the epidemiological okay, stew. Okay, so not only was the air unsafe, <laughs> <laughs> the fucking crap. Like, you couldn't just go, like, hit the ground. No, you're no. going to get eaten alive. You're little nibbles. <laughs> Holy shit. It was literally that. Oh, no. So, it uh, is... Um, Wildly true of Moga's ex- or of Moga's experience. 
What Cushman writes about him is that his life substantially changed from the relatively privileged life of an indentured personal assistant mm-hmm. to somebody who's on these fucking guano islands, like backbreaking work in the worst conditions you can imagine mm-hmm. every single day. His job was two or threefold. He was meant to like plant coconuts on the guano islands so that like they had some sort of sustainable food source. Oh, gee. He Just also coconut? took. I mean, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, okay. Also took part in the blasting and the collecting of actual bird shit and was also acting, again, as an intercessor between laborers and overseers. The coconut thing led to an ant infestation that contaminated all their food and the workers in management definitely both hated him, you know? Yeah. So, quote, excuse me, I had to burp. In January 1891, after a year and a half, Moga was deeply depressed and more than eager to leave this islet. Poor me, he wrote on the last page oh, of his journal. No, <laughs> Moga, no. No, Moga. He's literally like twenty. You we're, know, we're fucking rooting for you, dude. I know. <laughs> like, keep going. Well, also, well, no. Let's hear what. What did he? What did he say? What did he, he does. Say? Okay, so I don't have anything left of Moga. <sighs> That's all. He, that's that was his last entry. Yeah, it was his last entry <laughs> into the journal. He does eventually get a wife, but like doesn't like that she's poor. <laughs> that's all I remember from the book. I have to admit, like, I'm a little conflicted. About <laughs> <laughs> what are his values? You know what I mean? Okay, it's fine. <laughs> so that's pretty rough. But I say this for relativity mm. because Cushman writes further. Moga's tribulations on the Guano Islands were actually quite tame. He follows that up with some of the most batshit insane sentences I've ever heard strung together. <laughs> Are you ready? No, but yeah, yeah, I am. Let's do it. In 1883, Arundel, our guy from before, JT, J- Justin uh, Timberlake. Yes, Justin Timberlake. <laughs> Thank you. JT sent three Nuians, other people from Mogo's Island, okay. to plant coconuts under the supervision of Squire Flockton, a high-born Englishman desperate to escape alcoholism. A violent illness, probably dysentery, convinced Flockton to go back to the bottle as a curative. The solitude eventually caused him to lose his mind, to the point where he had forced his subordinates into a drunken reenactment of the Last Supper. What? That devolved into a wild shooting spree and Flockton's suicide. You want to know what's so bad about this? The <laughs> person who's writing and keeping account of this started this with <laughs> the drunkard squire. <laughs> like, what the hell? Why would you do that? Every single new word in the sentence was a surprise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> last Supper? The, a drunken reenactment of the Last Supper before a shooting spree that led to Flockton killing himself. <laughs> so, like, it could be worse than what Moga experienced on those guano islands, you know? Surprisingly. And in moments like this, I'm like, how in God's name has any human being ever made it past <laughs> 1850? <laughs> like... These guano islands are some of the bleakest working conditions you can imagine. People are dying all the time of dysentery, alcoholism, drowning, whatever. It's a miracle that any of us have made it this Mm -hmm. far. So, to put it mildly, and I mean very mildly, working conditions on the guano islands are some of the bleakest you can imagine. And that's assuming you made it to the island in the first place. Yeah. Here's a brief interlude for transportation. We've discussed many times on the podcast that even for relatively privileged travelers, ship travel, especially in the 1800s, was a nightmare by modern standards. But for poor people, people who were not considered people at all, some of the most horrific nightmares about ships coming true. Perhaps the bleakest paragraph, again, I've ever read in a book comes from Cushman. Quote, dysentery, a classic disease of crowded conditions and poor nutrition, killed hundreds of Pacific Islanders in transit or soon after their arrival, just as it did Chinese contract laborers, Africans on the Middle Passage, etc., 
There was no hard evidence that any Pacific Islanders ended up on Peru's Guano Islands, but a few contributed to the guano industry in a small way by shitting their lives away from dysentery on the manure heap of coastal cotton plantations. Uh, that's not workers. That's, yeah, that's... I think you're picking it's, up on where this is going. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's it's enslavement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Literally it is. Uh and that's why it's like that goes back to the original point that I had of like that's why this uh would not be placed on a US map at all so that it can be quote unquote excused in the eyes of the US government or whatever playtime oh, they're doing. Stop spoiling the rest of the podcast, Jordan. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. But you're right, right? Like th- I didn't even write this in my notes, but the way that you can get most people to work on these guano islands is not through a labor contract. It's by going and scooping some people out. There are examples of like Oh, I mean, literally, the, the working conditions, as you just said, there's no working condition. Yeah. It's just suffering. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just suffer there. Mm-hmm. It's bad. Literally on your feet or above, up above you. Like, it's just suffering. <laughs> Talk about the rats and the birds above <laughs> Yes, you. exactly. <laughs> and the humans that are there, like, they don't see you as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, Cushman's book talks extensively about the Rapa Nui people on Easter Island and how, oh, wow. you know... There used to be an indigenous population that had its own traditions. There were people who were literally called birdmen who, like, you know, participated in, like, the fertility rituals of the land, whatever. It's kind of hard to live on Easter Island. There had been numbers of, like, droughts, human-caused environmental degradation that made it hard to live on the island. Mm-hmm. Functionally, hundreds, if not thousands, of men were kidnapped from Easter Island to go work on the Guano Islands. Kidnapped God. by ways of, like, setting a fire and then, like, they run away or, like... There's a drought in convincing them that, like, they're going to make good money somewhere else or just literally stealing. Uh, um, and this is not U.S. involvement. This is Europeans, like, stealing mm, men from Easter Island. Sure. By the time, like, all this guano shit comes to an end, there's hardly anyone left on Easter Island. That's why we don't know anything about the statues. There's very little, like, tradition that's been carried on. Colonization. And yet, <laughs> because Easter Island has been mostly populated mm. by indigenous people, it is one of the most, uh, like... It's one of the greatest examples of indigenous uh, persistence Mm -hmm. through the day because there are still people who are indigenous to Easter Island who still are alive. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a side note that is not in any of my notes, Mm -hmm. but it's just like the way that you acquire a laborer to work on these guano islands is through force. It is not through anything else. Mm -mm. And in the U.S., (laughs) completely legal. Uh-huh. You get like a, a document that's like, I'm going to go get some Pacific Islanders to go work on this island for cheap. And the U.S. is like, that was a stamp. Uh, yeah, go for it. Have fun, dude. <laughs> Jeez. So these are the working conditions on the islands. And the main mode of getting into the business is to kidnap people. Oh, J.T. Arundel's margins at the time were nearly 100% when he was operating his company. Wait. As in, it cost you nothing to make it. Okay. <laughs> And whatever you make is like 100%. Oh. You know, like if you're spending like a cent. Yeah. This is going to be bad math, but like you spend a cent and you get $100 on it, you know? Yeah. On the guano. Oh, God. This is at a time where guano was selling for $76 per pound. <laughs> In the 1800s. That's so much. I know. It's pretty grand that you could pay people pennies on the month at best for doing this work that you are making a like boatload huge on huge amounts on yeah. enough to like today your families still mm-hmm. are fine so fucking hell we were now just talking about the one guy jt arundel who is british as you remember but this episode is about the u.s empire this just like british like this 
introduction in Moga's or Moga's life and JT Arundel, mm-hmm. it's pretty emblematic of what I'm about to talk about. But we don't have as many personal examples from the U.S. Okay. So I just wanted to get you in personally oh. to get you to understand yeah. what's kind of the vibe here. I, I mean, I'm front row and kind of uh, and uncomfortable, but yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Let's keep going. The thing that is different about Moga's experience is how good it was relative to everybody else. That was oh, that was good. Yep. <laughs> So, let's shake that shit off and let's talk about the United States. In 1840, circling all the way back, 1840, once it's discovered that guano is going to be wildly profitable and successful, there's a problem for the United States. Europeans, specifically the fucking British, found it first. Mm -hmm. So, Peru and Britain, Peru is where the best guano islands are. Oh, okay. Uh, Peru and Britain cut an exclusive trade deal, meaning no one in the U.S. stood to profit from this motherfucking bird shit in Peru, where, again, the islands are the best. Yeah. So what's a girl to do? (laughs) Well, the ocean is quite big. There are plenty of islands and atolls where nobody lives that are also covered in guano. From Imivar, speculators suspected that unclaimed Pacific islands contained untold guano riches... Two such islands, Howland and Jarvis, in the Central Pacific, more than a thousand miles from the nearest large landmass, had been known for decades to whalers and seemed particularly promising. Guano entrepreneurs hastily formed the American Guano Company. They begged President Franklin Pierce to send the Navy to Howland and Jarvis to protect their diggings from foreign interlopers. It's it's a complicated sentence. Do you understand what's going on? Can you explain it in another sentence? Yeah. (laughs) So... A bunch of American businessmen were like, we heard that these random uninhabited islands in the middle of the Pacific are covered in guano. Yeah. We don't want other countries getting there first. So, so gonna... hey, president, can you send the Navy <sighs> to like protect us while we're digging for guano? Sure. Okay. Now I'm caught up. Which is, um, in the uh, international law, kind of, kind of whack. Yeah. It's, uh. Well, in international law, which is all just playtime. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? At this point, we're all just making up rules. We're, uh, we're just flying by the seat of our pants. Because uninhabited, who actually fucking knows that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're just going to... We just we just want, like, your strong arm to come help us out. <laughs> like, Do you know anything about Franklin Pierce? No. Now is my time to tell you about Dylan oh. Cohen's Franklin Pierce bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you see this? No, I didn't. But it's funny because I'm like, that's a president, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. See? And my my ass is like, oh, shit. Oh, my God. It's so fucking funny. Okay. So Franklin Pierce is the 14th U.S. president. Right. And nobody knows who that is. Mm-hmm. Can you also talk closer to the microphone? Sorry. Franklin Pierce is the 14th U.S. president. Yep. And nobody knows who he is. Okay. So Dylan Cohen does this bit on this show called History Mystery, also at the Lincoln Lodge. Um where we all like play historical characters and like do a monologue as them. Yeah. I've done one as Rachel Carson and Imelda Ponzi. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter. So Dylan does Franklin Pierce and everyone in the group chat is like, who the fuck <laughs> is Franklin Pierce and why are you doing it? So picture it's the stage, the sound of like an ambiance of like a, um, like a coffee store is playing. Okay. Mm-hmm. You hear like light jazz, a bunch oh. of conversation in the background. Dylan enters the stage and they're like in half undone formal wear. <laughs> <laughs> and they put their hand in their pocket, and then they get, their first line is, the barista never remembers my name. <laughs> and so oh they God. launch into this monologue, okay? And the monologue is like, I'm Franklin Pierce, 14th president of the United States. Oh Nobody knows anything I've done. And then they like look down and they go, but today I want to do something unforgettable. <laughs> <laughs> they sang a whole song. 
And it's all I can think of when I think of Franklin Pierce now. Well, because also, like, he died early, right? Okay, so then in the bit, in Dylan's <laughs> bit, Franklin Pierce receives his drink from Starbucks. Yeah. And the drink is just a tall milk. Mm. And so he drinks it. And then for the rest of the song, it's fart sounds. <laughs> dying of a gastrointestinal disease. <laughs> See, that's why I say that. Because, unfortunately, history also remembers the man, unfortunately, in a very small little window. Because he died so fast. You might be thinking of a different one. You're thinking of William Henry Harrison, oh, who yes. also comes up in this story. Oh, really? Yeah. I know wow. he was the ninth president, but yeah. he's coming up again. Oh, Don't okay, you worry. Great. Um, but Franklin Pierce also died prematurely yeah. from <laughs> gastrointestinal ailments. <laughs> it was just, it was the 1800s. We could Damn. not be alive. Oh no! Oh my God! I'm switching up presidents. They're dying so fast. Oh my God! Literally everyone else too. So, um, circling back. Okay. <laughs> the American Guano Company has asked President Franklin Pierce, mm-hmm. the unforgettable man, <laughs> if he can send the Navy to like these uninhabited islands for them to mine guano. Okay. That way it will protect from Peruvian and British folks from coming in and taking it themselves. Quote, Pierce not only obliged, he did one better. By oh. backing the Guano Islands Act of 1856, under its terms, whenever a U.S. citizen discovered guano on an unclaimed, uninhabited island, the island would, quote, at the discretion of the president, be considered as appertaining to the United States. It was an obscure word, appertaining, Mm. as if the law's writers were mumbling their way through the important bit. But the point was this. Those islands would, in some way, belong to the country. This also just, like... Speak on it. Because it just makes me think about the fact that who the fuck is writing acts? Like an act, action... You just decide, like, where does the act come from? Mm-hmm. Who are the lawmakers? Like, what is a lawmaker? Like, I think about even acts today that people try and, like, pass or, like, they just cock. I'm like, what? <laughs> where did that come from? <laughs> like, I think about how much has changed in our lifetime. Like, when I try to think about myself in the 1850s, right? Yeah. In 1856, this sure. I'm like... There is so much that is legally changed in our lifetime, and we just keep living. Yep. Like, gay marriage is legal now, abortion isn't. That's true. That's, that's and we I'm, just keep being like, all right. Like, <laughs> where are these, what is an act? What, where is it coming from? And why are we just, like, putting all of our gun-ho behind it in a way where it's like, okay, sure. In a way, this is a deeply ahistorical analysis. Mm. I am not the History Bureau, but if I had to put myself in the minds of these people, it's like, well... In my lifetime, I have seen the United States continue to grow. Yeah. Like, we don't even have 50 states yet. We keep adding new states, sure. like, fucking every year. So we're so just trying to, like, get out there. So it makes sense okay. that we would maybe add more. Yeah. Okay. Like, that's why we would sign this. And, and again, deeply ahistorical take. Mm. I'm happy to accept feedback on it. No, it's, it's also just, like, in that historical context... Yeah, you would sign anything that says expanding yeah. business. It doesn't money. seem as weird to them as no. it would to us. Yeah. Because, you know, the map hasn't changed, mm-hmm. at least for us, since the fucking 50s, the 1950s. Yeah. But um, for them, it's. Yeah. For them, it was constantly changing. So I mm-hmm. guess perhaps that's what's going on. But also, I feel like if it came up, and that's what I'm saying, though. If it came across the desk today, I still feel like this would pass lickety split <laughs> so fast. Oh my God, you're so right. <laughs> like, that's what's like deeply problematic about all of it. Okay, so what every single book that I've read about guano does is compare it to oil. Which is oh, exactly... It's the same thing. It's, it's literally thing. history fucking repeating itself. Because it's a natural resource uh-huh. that is easily depleted. We will run out of it that is hard yep. to like generate again. Exactly. And so look at us fighting wars over it and like mm. making 
significant policy decisions around it. <laughs> so th- that might help you further situate yourself into the mind of a man in the 1850s. <laughs> I'm trying so hard to get in there. <laughs> so the second that the pen hits the paper mm. on the Guano Islands Act of 1856, people get their dirty asses right on those boats <laughs> and they try and find islands. Mama, they are staking their claim on any rock in the Pacific Ocean that's floating. <laughs> And so by 1857, one year after the act, we've got some islands. Per Imavar, by 1902, we'd claimed 94 islands. Are you fucking kidding? Cushman does say 66, and I did not care to bother to see what the accurate number is. No. But all I know is by today, we still own fucking nine of them. (laughs) And do you know what we do with those islands? No. So those islands that we claimed in the 1800s to early 1900s, we now use for military bases and oh. testing. Oh. When we made, do you remember Agent Orange from the Monsanto? I episodes? do actually. So that's unfortunately, we, uh, the Johnston <laughs> Atoll, which we claimed under the Guano Islands Act of 1856, that's where we just dump Agent Orange that we didn't need anymore. Oh, great! Crossover! Yay! <laughs> so it's just there, Orange. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, those fish are weird yeah. looking. <laughs> those fish. Oh God! <laughs> oh, no! It's so bleak. so we sign this act into law Mm -hmm. and as you can imagine a number of legal questions do begin to arise right when we like put it into action yeah first of all by sending the fucking navy we nearly got into a war with peru and britain over this sure but as imavar writes cooler heads prevailed so we did not get into a war Peru did get into a bunch of um, armed conflicts though I was gonna Bolivia Chile was a whole thing yeah it's bad so, uh, that's not the focus of this episode, though. Mm-hmm. Sorry to this Peru. <laughs> <laughs> this Peru. <laughs> so, again, a number of legal questions in the U.S. arrive. Uh, how does it work functionally if we own these islands? Are they states? Are they territories? Are they represented in our government? We literally got them so we can make a quick buck, but now we have to answer these questions. Yeah. What is the word appertaining to mean? You know? Mm-hmm. So. Still. To answer that question, we'll, we'll go to Devil's Island. Huh. Mm-hmm. Who came up with that name? Sorry. Where's well, the credit for that one? <laughs> I don't have any credits, but I think it's because of how bad it sucked. <laughs> 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 Moving coasts. So we've been talking about the Pacific this whole time. Let's move over to Devil's Island, uh, which is the name of Navassa, which is near Haiti. Okay. This is an island where we found some guano, and so we just said this is appertaining to us now. And this island... I don't need to make this distinction, but I will anyway. We were not necessarily mining guano on this island. We were mining phosphate. Because okay. we found some guano. We staked it. Found out that phosphate is much more useful. So we oh. just started mining phosphate on it. Damn. Right? Yeah. So the Navassa Phosphate Company takes control of the island, tasking its labor force with harvesting and shipping potent phosphates and shit. The Navassa Phosphate Company deceived most of its labor force into working, promising mostly illiterate black folks from Baltimore a gorgeous life of fruit and chicks. Oh, you know, like in the tropical yeah. climate. They signed contracts they mostly didn't understand and were shipped off to conditions that were worse than prison even in the 1880s. Oh, fuck. This is from Imavar, quote, The scorched, jagged, sea-battered island had neither fruit nor women. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck! No women? No women? (laughs) No fruit? Mangoes? Anything? Instead, it offered a scurvy-inducing diet of hardtack and salted pork, 
along oh. with the company of abusive white overseers. Such necessities as shirts, shoes, mattresses, and pillows could only be gotten from the company's store at wildly inflated prices. Workers who fell ill were fined. Oh, God, this is so bad. I'm so sorry. Those who made trouble were triced, tied up for hours in the hot sun with their arms in the air and their feet barely touching the ground. Oh, right. Back to just like the enslavement part. Yeah, so (laughs) side note to say, anybody who tries saying slavery wasn't that bad should be uh, shot dead on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, this this is how we're treating like full, like quote unquote free black citizens who were living in Baltimore Uh in the 1880s when slavery is now illegal. Mm -hmm. That's how we're treating those people. Can you imagine how much worse slavery, not to compare obviously, but like... It's just bad all around and it just keeps sucking and it just, it actually didn't get worse. It just is worse yeah <laughs> it's just worse like uh, so anyways Jesus ron Christ. desantis can choke on my fucking dick uh and especially because it's not a, a terror uh, an official actually it's not an official territory too like this shit can happen because it's it's like it right like the united states hasn't claimed it yet still as like an official oh this is gonna be the question that we're answering in this oh, okay sorry. oh i'm so excited I'm to tell you the rest of the story <laughs> okay sorry i keep jumping go no i'm so happy that you are <laughs> i'm like thinking about it i'm yeah. like why yeah yeah so picture this you're trapped on this island and somehow didn't die shitting yourself on the boat there uh as many people <laughs> <Right>. do <laughs> you've survived long enough to eat saltine crackers and pig belly all day just to catch a bad case of asthma from all the like rocks you're cracking mm-hmm. a white overseer is calling you some degrading horrible name 24-7, he finds new and unimaginable ways to torture you for making trouble. What's one to do? The answer for a particular group of six black men on the island was revolt. Mm. In 1889, one particular argument led to an armed fucking battle between the black Baltimorean men and their white overseers. Quote, white officers fired at their workers who fought back with axes, razors, clubs, stones, discarded pistols, and dynamite. Five white nice. officers died in the melee. Also, I hate to say it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The workers were hauled back to Baltimore and marched through the cold streets, cuffed and in some cases shoeless, to the city jail. The one subtle thing I do appreciate about the story, uh, at least from what I gather of Imovar's telling, is that the black Baltimoreans absolutely kicked the shit out of these white dudes. Yeah, I was going to say, did they even need the dynamite? I I'm about, saying! <laughs> like, I was like, I'm like, they wow. had five KOs. Yeah, was, you don't need to mention, like, okay, yeah, go, good job. Once again, they're living on saltine crackers and rage. Yep, and just came across on, like, boat, as you just said, didn't die from fucking shitting themselves, whatever yeah. the fuck disease is flying through there. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. And they still are able to knock out five of them. <laughs> like, of like well-fed, well-slept, mm-hmm. you know, dudes. Sleeping on the mattresses and beds at the gift shop doesn't <laughs> give to anyone else. The gift else. shop! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's what I imagined is like, you know, imagine being that worker and you're just sitting there and you're just like looking around and people walk in and they can't buy fucking anything. Yeah. Jesus. You're like, God damn, the price is raised again. Because it's also like with the conditions being so bad to work there, how can you possibly have a store to even buy that it's fucking shit? unreal. What? Like, uh, ooh. So, the defendants in this trial were pretty sympathetic to anybody who, like, wasn't racist. Consequently, black activist groups raised enough money for them to hire E.J. Waring, the first black lawyer to pass the Maryland bar, oh. to defend them in court. Their defense hinged on the idea that, of course, tricking your workers into doing slavery again, yeah. not cool, not mm-hmm. legal anymore. Mm-hmm. But, as Imovar points out, the key legal question here is... Does the United States even have the jurisdiction to punish these guys for killing the white overseers? Oh, my God. 
And that's now I'm frustrated. <laughs> you got at this like ten minutes into this podcast. <laughs> Damn it. So Haiti also claims the island of Navassa. Yeah. Right, because it's right fucking there. Mm-hmm. What the fuck does appertaining to the United States mean? I, I, is it a noun? Is it an adjective? I really do want to know. <laughs> so, the case makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. You ever listen to the podcast 5-4? No. Oh, it's so good. You would love it. Okay. It's a bunch of lawyers just like talking about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Oh, I would love it. And they go case by case. It's much like this podcast. I mean, my podcast is like their podcast, you mm-hmm. know, where it's like individual business or case in their case. Yeah. Um, and five talk, by four, you said? Five, it's called five to four. Five to four, okay. And usually it's like, you know, in the modern day especially, there's a bunch of decisions that have been passed five to four mm-hmm. from a conservative majority. Great title. So they, yeah, it's so good. Anyways, they've never talked about Jones v. United States 1890. It's a disappointment, so. Call them out. Let's he, yeah, say it I, again. Like, guys, <laughs> get on it because it's very interesting. Yeah. The Supreme Court, though, immediately is like, okay, we're answering the question do we have the ability to punish these guys for a crime that was committed in a, a territory appertaining to the United States? Mm-hmm. They go, yes, we can. Death sentence. Fuck you. You, sir, may fuck off. Death. Wow. Yep, because the Supreme Court sucks. Yeah. However. Jeez. This really? Lands- that's it? That's it is- no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> However, this case lands on the desk of our 23rd U.S. president, President Benjamin Harrison, <gasps> who is the grandson of William Henry Harrison, yes. who died after like 30 days in office. Yeah. God, I love his song. It'd anyway. be so embarrassing to have your grandfather die so early in office. <laughs> <laughs> his song, I, I don't even, I, I say I love his song. If I heard it, I'd be able to sing it. What song are you talking about? See, I don't know. It's, it's literally a song about him. Dying. William Henry Harrison? Yeah, it's uh the same uh the same people that made the it's the Schoolhouse of Rock, I think. Or not Schoolhouse of Rock. Schoolhouse Rock? Yeah, Schoolhouse Rock. They, they made a they have a song for him. <laughs> about how with the ninth president of the United States died. In my AP junior uh year, I listened to it multiple times. You can't times. give me a taste? No, because I don't remember it. <laughs> I'm sorry. You don't want to improvise anything? <laughs> <laughs> my name is William Henry Harrison. Sorry, that's enough singing. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> Go to facts. So, any hoodles. Mm. This Devil's Island trial lands yep. on his desk. And he, to his credit, sends a ship over to the island to investigate the working conditions. To be like, well, what was it like there? Yeah. The USS Kearsage, or Kearsarge, comes back with a shockingly accurate report. The Navasa Phosphate Company was running, quote, a convict establishment, though without a prison's comfort and cleanliness. <laughs> Right. Okay. So that's sure. enough for Benjamin Harrison to say, you know what? Let's not put these guys to death. Like, oh, hey, y'all, change of heart. <laughs> <laughs> but for real, he was just like, I, um, like, no, we can't kill them for like reacting appropriately to the situation. Sure. Now, I can't find any evidence that the company, the Navasa Phosphate Company, faced any punishment for treating their workers like this. No, why would they? However, the company did not last past 1898. So that's oh. like 10 years after the, well, the trial begins in, I think, 1890. So yeah. they don't last for even 10 years after it. So I, mm. either it was that they ran out of phosphate or some sort of punishment happened that I can't find. Because, again, this is the 1890s. Or maybe you know? also word just got fucking out. Yeah. Like, do not 
do not don't go. do business with these just people. Don't go. Yeah. There's no women. There's no fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> just like in that, you know what I mean? Because like for normal fucking people, I don't always hear about shit right away. Uh-huh. But if my friend looks at me and says, uh, "I'm like, oh, I just heard this deal about." Sorry, not speaking about me. But, <laughs> <laughs> so I got this. I got offered to, to fly with this like this um uh this flying company that which i won't say their name it starts okay. with the u and they uh there was a worker at this like restaurant i was working at and he was like you would be so good at being a flight attendant blah 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 the working conditions are great blah blah like all this stuff just like talking it up i came home and i told you about it and you turned to me and went have you read anything about like flight attendants <laughs> accounts recently and i was like no went and read two articles one from the washington post one for the new york times didn't ever reach <laughs> out like it's, yeah. it just takes that just like hey uh no because when you're like not having a great time and you like hear about a great idea it's yeah. so easy it's so fucking easy to go oh this fits the, the whatever dream i had of traveling or whatever it is i'm gonna just go fucking do it mm-hmm. why not anyways that gives context to <laughs> making that joke <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's so real. And like, I was struggling for a long time of how to connect this episode to the modern day because so many of the laws back then are just so foreign to us. The fact that slavery was legal, mm. the fact that like, yeah, their modern society barely had a sewing machine. Like, you had to make your own clothes. You had to yeah. live off the land. You had to like, you know, get a family unit. It's literally to get on the any- horizon of everything that we have now like so deeply ingrained yeah. that we just don't even think about still it's still adding new states to the fucking map yep. you know like all of that is to me completely foreign and so making any connection of like i can relate psychologically to what these people are going through mm. is very useful even though obviously your situation is much different mm-hmm. like very yes it's still like you know just a little psychological it's piece that's there i love it the simple fact of like the appeal yeah. That there could possibly be something greater, like, especially in a world, as you're now saying, where everything around you is still being expanded, still trying mm-hmm. to find, still trying to figure out. If you catch word that there's possibly something that you could be a part of. A garage quick scheme, essentially, and you have abs- no other information. Yeah. Abs- a fucking lily. Even if your life is fine at that point, mm-hmm. I'll take it. Let's go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wow. In the mic. Yeah, I had a little bit. I wanted to put it right in the mic because I wanted to let you all know that I had a sip of beer while Jordan was talking. <laughs> As I was going on my beautiful monologue. So, yeah. all this is to say, 1800... Oh, I'm sorry. Mm. Harrison, like I said, uh, pardons them from being put to death. Oh, right. He makes a public speech about it. And in the speech, he confirms that we do, in fact, own the islands claimed under the 1856 Guano Act. Because what he says is... They had no government to go to to, like, get redress for their working conditions. Ah. And so because we own it, we owe that to workers. So he's, like, basically saying, while the law was vague before, I am now clarifying that yeah. we do own the islands. That's that the most claimed. surprising thing of the story, that a actual, like, literal, like, separation from a U.S. official is, like, saying, hey, this wasn't right. <laughs> and like, well, saying, hey, this wasn't right, and then saying, okay. We have to own up to the shit that we did because this is part of who we, like, this is part of our territory. Yeah, but then because of that, we then get to keep expanding our colonial empire. Oh. <laughs> all right, I didn't think it all the way through. So, well, <laughs> okay, it is, like, both things, you know? It's like, okay, we got to own up to our shit, and, like, we can't just have people yeah. who, like, belong to our country just abusing people overseas. 
but it's because we own overseas. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I was I find really hard. <laughs> I was. Old Benjamin oh. Harrison. Oh. Um, yeah. So, 1800s business history is rife with blood, shit, a deep, unbending connection with the state to make sure that we, like, keep making money. Mm-hmm. That is what 1800s business is like, which is why it doesn't appear on Busted Business Bureau very often, because it's deeply unrelatable and, yeah. like, <laughs> wild. Yeah. Do you feel like you've learned about guano? Yeah, I actually have. I it Also, I feel like I've heard about guano and, and weird, like, when it's talked about as a um, something that is taken from other, or not taken actually it is taken stolen from other like parts of the world Mm -hmm. i've heard about it but now i actually know about it i didn't learn anything about it really and now you have now i have guano islands act 1856 benjamin harrison yeah uh franklin pierce sending the navy to go (laughs) (laughs) yeah it all just unfortunately is just a repeat of uh history for us i feel like so instead of ending on that okay I would like to give you basically a book report. Sure. I'm. This is no longer Busted Business Bureau. This is, I loved a book, and so I'm going to tell you about yeah. it. Yeah. Is that okay? okay? Yeah, please do. So, um, Daniel Imavar, like I've been quoting him this whole time, mm-hmm. uh, wrote this book, How to Hide an Empire, Yeah. History of the Greater United States, and his third chapter is called Everything You Want to Know About Guano But We're Too Afraid to Ask. Oh. Hilarious. Yeah. And he clearly knows it's the best chapter of his book because he's given it as a lecture before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so... I, like, reading this chapter is what got me interested. It's what I, why I wanted to make this episode. Blah, blah, blah. And I want to tell you about the rest of his chapter. Because mm-hmm. I only got, like, halfway through before, you know, we've concluded our story here. Daniel Imovar, again, is this guy's name. He continues the chapter with how the discovery of nitrogen-rich fertilizer spurs a scientific frenzy. Someone's got to discover how to synthetically make nitrogen instead of just like harvesting bird shit because bird shit is going to run out. Yeah, it's They not all knew that back in the day. Yeah. That's why they all are rushing to get it. So yeah. scientists are like, how the shit do we make? I'm sorry. How the fuck do mm, we make? Thank you. For <laughs> You're welcome. Um, yeah. How do we make synthetic nitrogen out of the air? Enter a German Jewish couple around the 1910s, mm-hmm. Fritz and Clara Haber. They're both scientists. They both have like PhDs, real fucking yeah. smarty pants of a couple. Know what they're doing. Sure. Fritz Haber discovers a crucial part of creating synthetic nitrogen, which is now called the Haber-Bosch process. Arguably, the amount of fertilizer and crops that this process yields, like, he figured out how to do, like, nitrogen from thin air, basically. Wow. And so you can put that into a fertilizer, sell it in a bag, and, like, bang, bang, Yeah. we have crops. Did it from my living room. Love it. <laughs> Arguably, this process y- yields the world the ability to like grow food to sustain millions of lives like that is how important the Haber-Bosch process is oh I didn't even I I would not have well because I don't have a PhD or anything but now it makes sense if you can do yeah oh my god if you can do that you can make fertilizer you can do anything really exactly (laughs) so however Imovar gives us insight into the rest of Haber's contributions to science of his relationship with Clara Imovar writes it was a portrait of Dorian Gray marriage. The more Fritz flourished, the more Clara withered. Just as her husband was honing his invention, Clara wrote an anguished letter to her former scientific mentor. Quote, what Fritz has gained in these last eight years, that and even more I have lost. And what is left of me fills me with deep dissatisfaction. Whoa. So their marriage continues. He's yeah. growing more in her career while she's just middling, oh. housewifing making no scientific discoveries nearly what? as important as he did with the Haber-Bosch process. Right. Um, Imovar continues, 
Fritz Haber did not stop there. He assembled a supergroup of German scientists, four of whom, like he, went on to win Nobel Prizes. Overseeing their efforts, he introduced his second great invention, poison gas. Not only did Haber invent it, he personally supervised its debut in 1915, releasing hundreds of tons of chlorine gas upwind of some Algerian troops at the Battle of Ypres. I don't know how to say that. It's Y-P-R-E-S, and I didn't look up how to say it. Mm -hmm. In a delicious historical irony, the man who saved the world from starvation was also the father of weapons of mass destruction. Fuck. For this, Haber won still more more honors, a military commission, the Iron Cross, and an audience with the emperor. The only one who didn't appear to be celebrating was Clara. Right after gassing the Algerians, Fritz Fritz returned home for a quick visit. What transpired between the husband and wife during that visit is lost to history. But after Fritz went to sleep, Clara went into the garden with his service revolver and shot herself in the heart. (gasps) The next day, Fritz Fritz went back to the front. Oh. My. God. We don't really get much. This is back to me. We don't get much of the reasoning behind Clara's suicide. She didn't leave a note. Fritz didn't ever talk about this publicly. It's... However, a lot of people have hypothesized that it is in direct connection with his like poison gas inventions. Well, yeah, that you, it is likely an act of protest. The person that you love is going is literally responsible for so many deaths, mm-hmm. and will be responsible for so many deaths because you just watched the invention that started as just the nitrate thing turn into mm-hmm. so many other things, like. That's, no, that's bad, bad. So we don't, again, like, it's not like she told us. It's just what a lot of historians assume. That's what I assume hearing it. (laughs) Hello? (laughs) God. As it turns out, too, the institute that Fritz Haber had founded, like, uh, they continued to build on his work. He had been in some way instrumental in creating the insecticide known as Zyklon A. Unfortunately, this further developed into Zyklon B, which is what Germans used in the gas chambers during World War II in Jewish yeah, concentration camps. Right there. There it is. This included many members of his late wife, late wife Clara's family. Mm. However, Daniel Imovar, again, Daniel Imovar was writing the book, mm-hmm. concludes the chapter with this. Luckily, not all of them perished. Although Clara's married name was Haber, she is today known by her maiden name, the name under which she defended her dissertation, Clara Imovar. Her cousin Max was my great grandfather. Oh, oh my god! Gag! Dude, it's got chills. Oh my god! Gag! Oh my god! (laughs) See, right there. That's why. Like, also, why it wasn't the head, like in the heart too. I feel like that's like a a symbolic, like, Mm -hmm. like I don't know. Oh my god! Oh my! When I tell you, I picked up this book and I read that, and I was like, oh my god, I have to do an episode. Yeah, right, right. I wouldn't do this at even just like schools. I would read this anywhere. Yeah, like wow, that's my family fucking history right there. It's also weird. I was reading Gregory T. Cushman earlier, and he was talking about like people. This is so much more boring compared to Dealey Mark. <laughs> but he also talked about his direct ancestors in the book. He was like, my mm. direct ancestors were part of like moving west and like spreading yeah. guano and shit. Like he had a distant relative, like a cousin of his great great grandfather yeah. who was in the Senate in like Virginia or something. <laughs> like, it was some crazy shit like that. He was like, you know, 
has publicly spoken. You can like find access to his writings, which is yeah. just not something you could find of like most family histories. Wow. It's like, damn, both of these authors have like familial connections to these big parts of history. I'm happy they're writing about it too. I wish I yeah, my my family history got cut off. Both my both my parents' fathers either walked out or died and then died later. So they We died. were adopted. Whoa. We used to be the McKeons. We were Irish. And then really? we got adopted by the Borkies at some point. That's literally all I know. Uh, wow. So we can't write books about our family. <laughs> no, we cannot. No. So good for them for doing that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that a fucking bang? Like, I, yeah, my it, jaw dropped to the I floor. I cannot believe that, yeah. To write that personal connection, it makes sense, the narration of also the entire book. Not, like, hearing the quotes and stuff, it sounds... Like, there's a, a huge grasp on, like, the language and the imagery and also, like, fully giving a picture mm-hmm. in a way that feels a little also personal or close, which I think is great for any reader. And it should be important to give, like, your own point of view. But now the point of view is very clear. Like, my family has also a connection to this mm-hmm. beyond just the indigenous people that were screwed over. The uh, I'm going to put workers in quotes, uh, quotations <laughs> yeah. that were, like, screwed over. The enslavement that happened everything like everyone at every single point and juncture at this story was either fucked murdered or just like imprisoned for life yeah (laughs) for this single thing that like catapulted into wars and for froyo <laughs> literally froyo oh my god sorry i was like going, i was like this whole time it is like it starts from one little thing and then it just oh you don't even know even the yogurt eating don't do it <laughs> i was fucking with you i didn't know i know but i it's interrupted like, your monologue to make a joke about like, frozen yogurt i'm just like I'm spiraling <laughs> isn't this i'm so glad that you're like getting hyped about this because Mama, I know this episode's going to be a huge hit or miss. I think it it's like a hit or miss, but it, I think it's a, just another... There's a couple... Uh, not a couple. There's quite a few episodes that I listen to, and I go, why didn't I, why didn't I know about this? Mm. This is something that feels really close to the United States history in terms of, like, understanding the empire. Yeah. That we should know about. But, eh, whatever. And I, I learned also, about the to be clear, did not know about it. Like, I, I'm reading this book and I'm like, damn, I did not know we owned the Philippines until 1946. No. I had no fucking clue. No. Instead, I learned a fucking, like, song about a president who died that I can't even <laughs> fucking remember. I'm not kidding, though. I remember the impression of that song and I was so into it. Uh-huh. Oh, I really want to, oh, I want to know it and I want to record it and ask you to jump it in. <laughs> I you should ask me to do it at Dueling Pianos. Oh, yeah. Can I sing it? Yeah. Okay, I just remember. I've gotten requested doing pianos. Um, lolly, 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 get your adverbs here. <laughs> <laughs> it was by Sarah. <laughs> Love. Love that it was by Sarah. <laughs> yeah. I did 50 Nifty United States the last uh, drilling pianos. No, I don't even know if it was actually this. I don't even know if it was that company because I genuinely think it's just a YouTube video. Oh, okay. That my teacher found. She loves United States history. It's given crash course. <laughs> No, even it was even a step below that. Like it's I just, like Crash Course. No, I know, dude. I do too. But it's just like a step below that. Even that's why yeah. I'm just like, yeah, it's crazy. Well, do you feel like you've learned tonight? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I have. Seven beers deep. At the- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that. But also, I, I, I did learn, and I mean, I learned more of what like supports the the stories of just like colonization is bad yeah it benefits not a lot of people but today we actually do benefit from its findings and so we should learn about it so we know where and where it came from and how it came to be yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but yeah those guano islands 
islands. There's nine of them that we still today own. That we still today own. Jeez. From the US- 95, quote unquote, that were found? Mm-hmm. Jeez. From, from the, um, one of the islands is now owned by the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife Services. Oh, so supposedly there's restoration happening? Now? Well, because they were so badly damaged by all of the war shit we were doing on them. <laughs> Fish and Wildlife Services now has to own it. <laughs> Otherwise, it will keep deteriorating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, one bureaucracy is taking care of another I mean, bureaucracy's I, disaster. <laughs> like, I've talked so highly about the FDA, like the, yeah. you know... Uh, and then later, shit talk the FDA. I've never once shit talked the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife Services, and I'm nervous for the day that I find out they also suck. Well, I I actually did a project with them in my eighth grade year of high school because they have a huge uh fo- uh not following they they have a lot of activity in the Owens Valley where I grew up. Oh, cool! Because of the pupfish population, which is a like endangered population, mm. and their big thing that was like all over the New York Times for you little girlies listening was uh, when there was earthquakes a couple years ago all the pupfish turned blue and oh. it was like this weird thing because it was like earthquakes in I what? where it was yeah i think it was literally japan or it was like the the aftermath of a giant earthquake made them turn blue which turning blue happens in spring but they turned blue i think like randomly in winter so they started to reproduce and a lot of the populations died because of it but it was because of the seismic activity in the pacific ocean that caused them to do this. <laughs> it's insane. Look it up. And I cannot wait for the comments to uplift me because I'm not crazy. It's real. <laughs> 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 That's my connection to them. Otherwise, they, yeah, they just uh, uh, provide a couple jobs in my little valley and they take up way too much space. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't listen to any of the indigenous people there. <laughs> bad i can imagine it's very bad <laughs> well that's about it for this podcast anything else you want to add before we dip Nah, thanks for letting me be in your ears it's been fun oh jordan thank you for <laughs> everything tonight sure no whatever way <laughs> whatever yeah. i contributed but yeah thank you it's been fun all right well this has been busted business bureau if you like it uh you know it, the best thing you can do for me is to leave a comment or a rating or whatever mm-hmm. for the algorithm on apple podcasts and support you on patreon yeah, but I prefer, uh, I mean, I prefer either one. I like right. money, but I also like rating. And so you don't have to even tell me like that my podcast is good. Just say words. about your day, actually. Yeah. How are you as a human? Tell me what's your, okay, so me and Jordan, I'm going to spill tea about the two of us. <laughs> okay. Love getting three drinks at places. Oh, God. Like each. <laughs> we got the three drinks here. <laughs> so the, the three drinks bar. tonight were a shot of Malort, a Bell's Oberon beer, and a whole Negroni. <laughs> Which I have not finished. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we got to finish those before we fuck off for the night. And, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe I'll see you for brunch tomorrow and we can get some th- yeah. even more cursed beers. What three drinks are you getting? Let me know. Yeah. I actually do want to know. What's yeah. the, I, yeah, the most cursed I think I got was beer, a tea, and water. <laughs> that one was bad. Period. And you followed suit because it was so bad. Yeah. <laughs> you were so inspired. I was into it. <laughs> yeah, it sucked. <laughs> All right, well, that's been Busted Business Bureau. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and have a wonderful day.